And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, he followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. We're going to move to uh, the sermon, to a time of reflecting. Uh, primarily, we're going to be looking at the, the fourth and fifth scripture readings. I'm going to be referring to some of the verses there. So if you have your, your thumb in, in that section, kind of the, uh, the, the end, the middle of Mark 15. I want to start today with a question, though. If you could choose one descriptive word to encapsulate the life of Jesus, which one would you choose? Would you choose miraculous or perfect Amazing, loving, wise, there's any number that would be good choices. And in the early centuries of the Christian church, when councils and and gatherings were writing statements of faith, they faced exactly this dilemma. How do you summarize the life of Christ in a succinct way? Well, if you read the Apostles' Creed, which dates to the third century, if you read the Nicene Creed, it dates to the fourth century, they both chose the same word to describe the life of Jesus. And they say this, they say, he suffered He suffered. Suffering was what was most important. Of all the words they could have chosen, they said, this is the one that that most encapsulates what Christ did. Which is interesting, because Jesus is widely known for teachings, miracles, exorcisms, control of nature, healings. Yet these sort of giants of the faith said, no, no, what most encapsulates his life was his suffering. And when we come to Good Friday, that's what we're doing together, is we're remembering his suffering and is dying. And as we do so, we walk kind of a fine line, because on one hand, I don't want us to descend into to morbid fascination and get overly obsessive about uh, details of crucifixion, you know, the type of thorns, you know, for the crown. Uh, those it, details may be interesting, but they can distract. So I don't want to just sort of get into morbid fascination, but neither do we want to sort of be shallow and sentimental steering away from the the real and the profound suffering of Christ, we want to find a third way to appreciate the details, to know them, but would not get lost in them. I'll remind you that the cross, though relatively straightforward on its factual basis, it's not always easy to interpret. It's not always easy to understand what it means. You know, one of the very first stories we have post-crucifixion is of these two disciples walking to Emmaus, and the resurrected Jesus walks with them, and they don't realize who he, he was. And Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about as you walk along the road? And they give a quick version to Jesus of his own story, and, and they talk about how confused they were, and bewildered even. And they're like, we, we thought he was going to be the one who was going to save Israel. We thought all these great things were happening, and then he, he died. They, they killed him. And these two disciples, post-cross, didn't understand it. 
They didn't understand. They'd been with Jesus for some amount of time, but they didn't know why he had to die. And so it's wise of us to remember the cross doesn't interpret itself by itself. Like the meaning is kind of hard to get at, but it is my intent this morning to get at the meaning of the cross through the details of the story. So I have four points. First, I want to talk about the passivity of Christ. Second, we'll talk about accidental truths, then the forsakenness of Christ. And then just kind of a simple question at the end. Why did Jesus have to die? So first, the passivity of Christ. You know, when you read the Gospels, there's this undeniable ripple that Jesus makes everywhere he goes. He's like a large rock, you know, thrown into a a still lake. He's just causing waves. Whatever situation he goes to, he makes change. When Jesus passes through, fishermen walk away from their nets. Blind people begin to see. Lame begin to walk. Religious leaders get mad at him. But he's sort of like the center of this storm where things are revolving around him. There's sort of a storm around him. He's perfectly at peace, kind of in the middle of it. Um, but he's affecting everything. But starting in Mark 14 with the arrest of Jesus, you know, led by the traitor Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, from then on, Jesus is curiously passive. I mean, he's still the center of the action. The camera is following him very tightly. But instead of affecting others, he is now being affected by them. You know, there are 65 sentences that contain verbs in Mark's account of the crucifixion. 65 times where someone is doing something, something's happening, and Jesus is involved. In 56 of them, so 56 out of 65, Jesus is the object. Now, you're like, not a grammar person. That's fine. It just means the action is happening to him. The action is happening to him. In only nine of them is Jesus the subject, which means he would be the one doing the action. What I'm saying is Jesus is quite passive, exceedingly passive. Let me just show you. Look at verse 16. The soldiers led him away. Verse 17, the soldiers clothed him with a purple cloak. Verse 17, they crown him with thorns. Verse 18, they mock salute him. Verse 19, the three things, they strike his head, they spit on him, and they kneel down and fake homage to him. Verse 20, they put his clothes back on, and they lead him out to be crucified. And once you go looking for it, the whole story proceeds like this. They force him to carry the cross. They offer him a narcotic, you know, this wine mixed with... With myrrh. They crucify him. They divide the garments. They cast lots. The passerby, they ridicule him. Uh, those crucified with him also mock him. The chief priests and scribes get into the act. They mock him as well. It's not until verse 34 that Jesus finally takes an action, which is calling out to God in desperation. For most of the story, he's entirely passive. Why? two things, because it's Christ first submitting to the Father's will. See, the passivity of Christ, it's not a, not a fatalism, it's not a slumped shoulders agreement to go along, rather it's a kind of active obedience to the Father. When other places in the New Testament, when Paul comes along to describe what Christ is doing, he calls it submission, or he calls it obedience. Christ knows that he must die, and he knows that if he acted the other way, he could change the course away from his death. He could divert, but he will not. He chooses to be cast about and beaten and mocked and scorned. That's the bell I was warning you about. The second reason he's mainly passive, I would say, is because it's emblematic of the work he is doing on the cross. When you read the accounts, Christ is like a sponge 
and he soaks up the evil and the violence. He, he takes it into himself without word. He takes insults and beatings and mockery and all various kinds of pain and just absorbs it. But something happens uh, unexpected with the death of Christ. You see, when you, when you use a sponge, you know, in your kitchen to, you know, wash your dishes or if you clean your car with a sponge or soak up a spill, there's a normal cause and effect at work with sponges, right? If milk, you know, Cheerios get dumped on the table and you, and you, you sop it up with the sponge, what happens when you take that sponge over to the sink and wring it out? Well, whatever you sopped up gets squeezed out. If you, if you sopped up milk, milk gets squeezed out. It's like the iron law of sponges. Whatever you absorb gets squeezed out. But that's actually not so with Christ. Christ absorbs violence, pain, cruelty, mockery, and when he is squeezed, out of him flow the opposites, mercy, forgiveness, and love. See, when New Testament writers, when they speak about uh, the death of Christ, they talk about the forgiveness purchased for us, the, the love of God that was shown, but these qualities are the precise opposite of what was shown to Christ. He soaks up violence and dispenses mercy, and he soaks up cruelty, and he dispenses gentleness, and he soaks up mockery and dispenses the good word of God's forgiveness. The passivity of Christ is emblematic of what he's doing on the cross what Martin Luther calls the great exchange, where Christ takes in evil, dirty, rotten, sinful, and exchanges it for purity, love, and holiness. And when you read that, it's astonishing, because it's not the way we are. And that leads us to part two, accidental truths. One of the interesting features of the crucifixion account is that there's all these different kinds of people who are constantly attempting to ridicule Christ, but even as they make fun of him, as they mock him, they keep accidentally speaking the truth about him. There's this book called The Mystery of the Kingdom of God. It's written by this guy, Jewel Marcus, and he writes about this passage, and I'm going to quote him. He says this, so powerful is the kingdom that it reaches down even into hate-filled minds and venomous lips, drawing unwitting testimony from those who look without seeing. I think his point is profound. All throughout this text, people keep speaking the truth about Jesus, and they do it to try to hurt him, and because they hate him, but unwitting testimony is drawn from them. The truth still comes out. And let me show you at least three places this happens. First, if you look in verse 18, the whole battalion of soldiers comes together. That's 600 men. They gather around to torture him and to mock him as, quote, the king of the Jews. Now, part of their mockery is the Jews have no king. They haven't had a king for hundreds of years. They've been under the thumb of various world powers, you know, Persia and Greece and Rome and whatever. They've been given governors. They've been given other kinds of leaders, but they've been denied a king. And so to the soldiers, this weak, defenseless, now wounded man, like this is the kind of king these pitiful Jews deserve. And though they mean it in mockery, all they show is they don't know what a true king looks like. That to be kingly means not to serve and to lord, or not to, not to have power and lord it over those that command. That's not a true king. Kings serve their people and lead their people. And sometimes, when needed, they die for their people. And Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. From the line of David, a fulfillment of the promise to David, dying to save his people. King of the Jews. It's true. Next, look at verse 29. People were normally crucified outside the old city of Jerusalem on one of the main roads that led into the city outside one of the gates. And the Romans did this as a form of intimidation. They want to show everyone, here are the hazards of, of you know, thumbing your nose at Rome. 
And so Jesus hung on a cross next to a major highway. Now, not cars speeding along at 100 kilometers an hour, but people meandering by at a walking pace. All day long, as he hung there, third hour onwards, people passed by going to and from the city. And if you look in verse 29, everyone who's passing by is deriding him. They're wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You would who, destroyed, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now this taunt is a prophecy that we, we kind of read a little bit when they were making accusations against him. Uh, but Jesus made while standing in the temple, he said, I'm going to, going to destroy the temple and raise a new one in three days. And the people at that time scoffed at him. They're like, this thing took 46 years to build. How, how are you going to do it in three days? And they scoff even more now because how can a dying man tear down a temple and rebuild it? For them, the claims are even more ludicrous than ever before. But of course, Jesus was never speaking about the physical temple. And if you read John 2, John interprets Jesus' comments there, and he says what Jesus was speaking about was the temple of his body, that the, the place people would go to meet with God and commune with God would be moved from the physical temple to the body of Christ. So the passers-by on the road who deride Jesus about his prophecy cannot see that he's in the midst of fulfilling it. This is the building of a new temple. When people say to Jesus, get off the cross so you can fulfill the prophecy, that's exactly what he's doing. He's completing the prophecy by staying. See, they mean to mock him, but all they do is remind us, ah, the new temple is, it's coming into effect right here in front of them. The third accidental truth is in verse 31, where the chiefs and chief priests and scribes get into the act, mocking him by saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Now, when you read the Gospels, Jesus heals people regularly. And what we miss in English, but what Mark uh, captures in Greek, is that he keeps using an unexpected word to describe healings. He uses this Greek word, sozo, which means save. He, so when he says that he heals someone, he's, he's offering them a kind of salvation. But it wasn't just healings. It, Jesus also goes around offering forgiveness, offering salvation from sin. He saved disciples from storms. He raised people from death. He saved them from early graves. Everywhere Jesus went, he's saving people from disease and death and disaster and, and their sin. And the religious leaders sort of know this, which is why they mock him for it, because they're skeptical about it. And now it's their chance to jeer him, the Savior who can save everyone but himself. And they get it almost right. He can save others. And he could have saved himself, but he will not. See, they just got their verb wrong. They said cannot, but the truth is Jesus will not. They accidentally blurt out the truth that if Jesus were to save others, he wouldn't, or save himself, he wouldn't be saving others. If Jesus gets off the cross, if he calls for the angels to put an end to everything he was experiencing, then salvation would have been limited to himself. And so we are reminded it was not nails that held Jesus on the cross, but love. It's divine, holy love that keeps Christ there. The priests and the scribes, they say, come down so we can believe. But Jesus himself has already said, the Son of Man must be lifted up that people will believe. So he's mocked by three different kinds of people. Soldiers who call him the king of the Jews, passerbys who tell him to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, and chief priests and scribes who mock him as the savior of others only. And in each case, they have unwittingly told us the truth about him. Those who looked without seeing, those with venomous lips, have accidentally testified to what was true. 
Part three, the forsakenness of Christ. I want to focus in in this section on what's commonly called the cry of dereliction, the the final words in this passage that Christ spoke from the cross, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in the end of verse 34. You know, it's the only words of Jesus from the cross that is recorded by two of the gospel writers. It's a quote from Psalm 22. It's the opening lines of Psalm 22. And in some ways, it's the most disturbing and difficult thing that Jesus utters on the cross, for this is no cry of it is finished, or even I thirst, or the sort of encouraging, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This cry is nothing like those. It's a cry of abandonment. It's a cry of a son who can no longer sense the presence of his father. The cry comes at the ninth hour. Did you catch that detail? It's the traditional hour of prayer for Jews. It followed three hours of darkness. The darkness in itself a demonstrable proof that God was not absent. Yet what do we make of this? Was Jesus abandoned by the Father? And if so, how could that be? Is this some sort of monstrous cruelty by the Father to abandon the Son? Was Jesus surprised by this, or was he just feeling it keenly? The questions abound. And if it's any consolation... Theologians have argued and puzzled over this for centuries, but a few things to keep in mind as we get at the meaning of it. First is that Trinitarian thinking is essential. The scriptures teach that the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are never at odds with one another. All the decisions they make are in unity. So the Father is never doing something to the Son that the Son is like, I wasn't really in for this, I I don't, don't agree with it. So the forsakenness of Christ has fallen upon him on our behalf, in our place, but by Jesus' own choice. Whatever happened, whatever exactly was going on in that moment was Jesus' will and decision along with the Father's. It was not imposed on him from without. Second, forsakenness is a similar concept to accursedness. This is what the Apostle Paul argues in Galatians 3. And Paul offers this kind of brief chain of logic. He says, all humans live under God's curse because we do not obey him. You read Deuteronomy, you read Romans 1, we can see all who do not obey the law are subjects to to its curse. Now, God doesn't want us to be in that state, but he knows there is no way for us to be justified or to be rectified, to be made right according to the law. There's no life in the law all by itself. So something must be done to remove the curse of the law and give us a new life of faith. And Paul argues in Galatians 3, this is what Christ is doing on the cross. He's becoming a curse for us that instead we might experience new life in Christ. So on the cross, one of the things that is happening is the sinless Son of God puts himself deliberately into the condition of accursedness for us. And I think that's mostly what's going on in 34. Christ is experiencing the full weight of forsakenness, of accursedness. The sin of humanity, the distance uh, has come crashing down on him. Now, was God actually absent on Good Friday? Well, we might ask the same thing of Psalm 22. Was God actually absent from the psalmist when he wrote those same words in the middle of what is clearly deep soul distress? I think the answer to both is no. God was there. God spoke in the darkness that covered the earth. But I think such was Christ's state that he could not sense nor be comforted by the presence of his Father. So what does this cry of dereliction mean? 
It just means that this whole scene is, is chaotic and upended and backwards. A king is dying the death of the criminal. The earth is dark at midday. Nothing makes sense. But for us, weakness is becoming power. Death is becoming a means to life. And God-forsakenness is becoming a means of reconciliation. Everything's backwards, but it's for our gain. The forsakenness we had rightly earned with our sin was cast on Christ that you might not experience him. See, all that you shouldn't have done, and all that you should have done but didn't, all of that had earned you forsakenness. You should have been cast out. You should have have been the one calling to heaven and receiving no answer, for it was you and it was I that put him there. And not just sort of with our accidental sins, the little oopsie-daisies of life, all the freely chosen sins as well. All the well-crafted insults, the careful flattery, the ways we hurt ourselves, the ways we injure others, the sins of our youth, the sins of age, all the impure thoughts, the lack of patience, the silent grudges, the desire for our neighbor's possessions, our failure to be grateful, I mean, on and on. I say this not to shame you, but to tell you, Christ was forsaken for you. In our place condemned, he stood. That's what's going on, the forsakenness of Christ. Now, fourth and finally, why did Christ have to die? There are many answers to this question. One author wrote a book, I think, called 50 Reasons or 100 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. So there's lots. But look at verse 39. Jesus has uttered his final cry. He's breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. Now we all have access to God. And the centurion... Watching the scene, he's seen the torture, he's seen the walk from the city, he's seen the crucifixion, the darkness, and the way he died. He says, truly, this man was the son of God. You know, there have been many deaths in history that have been notable, but we refer to none of them in the way that we refer to Christ. We do not speak of the beheading or the guillotining or whatever, but we do speak of the crucifixion. Why? Because it brought many sons and daughters to glory. Think about it. The centurion likely knew nothing of Christ's miracles. We don't think he was there for the miraculous catch of fish. He didn't see Christ walk on the water. He didn't see blind men see or dead girl rise. He he, he hadn't heard the parables. He hadn't heard Jesus silence the Pharisees with his wisdom. He didn't know anything about the miracles, the healings, the exorcisms, the teachings. But look, he saw him die and that was enough. And that is the invitation Behold the man upon the cross. Watch him die. Watch him breathe his last and see there the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And so the invitation is simple. You can come to him. It's for you. The forsakenness, everything, it was for you. You can acknowledge him as Savior and Lord if you've drifted, if you've lost your way, if you need a restart, today is the day. And maybe if you've just simply grown lax, Maybe you've just simply gone cold to this. If, if respectable sins are creeping into your heart, then cast your eyes upon the Savior who died, forsaken and alone for them. Fling them and run to him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, and we are grateful for what you have done on our behalf. In our place condemned, you stood and sealed your pardon with our blood, and we are so grateful for having a Savior like you who could have left, who could have walked away, who could have saved himself but chose to not. 
Help us understand and to internalize these truths. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.